Well, we are winding down our, uh, our series on the book of Acts, and uh, we've been entrenched in this for a while. Uh, we talked about this last week. The main reason that we've been going through this, as, as detailed as we have been, is because we want to purposefully and intentionally look at how the church got started, what was mainly important. And Paul, as at the tail end of the story, is just giving his defense. He just tends to always be in this, um, I don't want to say defensive posture, but he always has to explain himself to the people that are, are in his path. There's a pastor in Ohio by the name of Alistair Begg. Maybe you're familiar with him. And uh, I saw a quote by him this week that I thought was great. It said, to be a Christian is not a religious experience. It is being radically transformed by God. To be a Christian is not a religious experience. It is being radically transformed by God. Have you ever met someone who went through a major transformation? When I uh, left for basic training... I was pretty, what's the word, fat, uh, that's the word, I was very out of shape, I, uh, I, I just was a sluggard, I had done weightlifting in high school, but uh, so I felt like I was strong, but I was just not in good shape at all, and so uh, when I came home on leave for Christmas, it was still, it was, it was pre-9-11, and so you could still go up to the gate to welcome people coming off of the plane. And so when my parents were waiting for me at the gate, uh, I got off of the plane, and there were probably five other people on the plane in uniform, and uh, my dad's standing there just going like this, waiting for me to get off the plane, and I was literally standing in front of him, and I had lost 60 pounds. And he, he, he just did not recognize me. Now, just so you're aware, the good news is I found all 60 of those pounds <laughs> over the years. It's unfortunate, but uh, they didn't stay in Alabama. Um, but I, I wasn't recognized by my own father. That's how uh, radical of a transformation I had gone through. And uh, when there's a transformation that happens, whether it's something like that with like, uh, physical transformation or a spiritual one or, or any kind of major transformation, it, it leads to questions being asked. When we lived in our last town, my friend Dave bought an old gas station, and this gas station was just, it had sat vacant for years and just was a dump. And one day he called me and said, hey, uh, I'm going to pick you up. I want to show you something. I just bought a piece of property. I want to show it to you. And he shows me this piece of property that, I mean, it was right in the center of town. Everyone knew where it was. And he said, I'm going to turn it into a subway, into a restaurant. I was like, Dave, this is a terrible idea. But we used to go over there once a week and pray over this building and pray that whenever it was done, God would use it to bring people to him somehow through this, uh, through this place that sold, you know, subpar hoagies. Uh, but I didn't think they were subpar until I moved to Philadelphia, just so you know. Now I, now I believe them to be subpar, but rough crowd this morning. I'll leave the humor <laughs> in the office. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, I, I remember going in, the, we unloaded the equipment and we, we set it up inside and we looked at this place that used to be this horrendous garage and it was a, a really nice restaurant now. 
And people started coming in and asking him questions like, oh, what did you do with this? Or what did you do here? What did you do there? And he would explain all the things that he did to fix this building up to make it into something different. I remember on the way home from the Pittsburgh airport, my dad and mom asking me questions. Like, what, what, what did they have you do? Like, what, did you eat? You know, anything? Uh, you know, those kind of questions. And anytime a transformation happens, I think we tend to ask questions. We ask questions like, well, what led to you desiring to make those changes? Or uh, what did you do? How did, it, how, how, how did it get done, right? Does that make sense? We, we're curious. We want to know the, the reasons why. Now, that's essentially what's happening in Paul's story. As it's played out in the tail end of the book of Acts, what we've seen is Paul answering those questions. People have recognized a transformation in his life. And they're asking him questions leading to why this has happened. Why did he make the decisions he made? Why did he go where he went? Why did he speak the way that he spoke? Now, some of those questions are coming at him from a very defensive and, and even like a, a persecuting tone. But it doesn't change the fact that they're all being asked because the transformation took place. If Paul wouldn't have changed his life at all, there would not have been any questions asked of him. He would still be on that side of history. So what we're going to look at today is Paul's fifth defense. So this is the fifth time that we've seen, and this one's different because it isn't a defense of a criminal charge. That's been pretty much dismissed. We're going to be able to see that in Acts 25. This is a defense against his actual testimony. This is a defense against the belief system that the culture that he's in says, this is not what we believe, and you were one of us one day, and now you're saying something completely contrary to what we say, and, and we can't handle that, we can't reconcile that. And so the Romans aren't really giving him any criminal defense, but anyway, they want to get to the bottom of this whole question. So if you want to turn with me, it's on page 645, if you're using the Bible in front of you. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts uh, 25 and 26. Now, at the tail end of chapter 25, verses 23 through 27, what you're going to see is that King Agrippa and his sister, Bernice, and they come in and they have all this pomp and circumstance and they have a, a military guard that comes in ahead of them and, uh, and, and they're, all of the prominent people in the city are there. And that's whenever Festus, who we saw last week, he basically says... There's no criminal grounds against this guy, but we have to write up charges, and I don't know what to write. And that's why he's standing before you. He's appealed to Caesar. This is the next step in the process before he goes before Caesar, and I don't know what to write. So, King Agrippa, you need to tell us, in verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. It's unreasonable for me to send him on to Caesar if I don't have any charges as to why he's standing before our emperor. 
We've already dismissed the criminal charges. So there's no grounds for this. This is, this is opposing religious voices. One side says Paul is on the wrong side of history and he should be put to death for it. They're taking a play out of their own playbook uh, with Jesus, with Paul here. So he's standing before King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. And there's an interesting thing about King Agrippa. Uh, He wasn't really a king. He was what's called a vassal king. And uh, for all the obsession we have with like British royal culture... King Agrippa is kind of like Queen Elizabeth in England, meaning that he's famous and he's not notable, but he's not really in charge of anything. He doesn't really have any power or authority. So he, uh, he was basically all show and tradition. This was a part of the process. And so now, essentially, what Festus wants, what he needs... He, Festus, by the way, could send Paul on to Caesar without this step. But what he's saying is, this doesn't make any sense to me. He's saying, I don't need King Agrippa involved in this. King Agrippa is a a ceremonial king. He doesn't have any authority here. But I don't want to send this prisoner before my lord, small l lord, emperor, until I can tell him why I'm bringing him there. And I'm going to make King Agrippa... Say that for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make King Agrippa give the charge to the emperor. So that's what's happening here. So at this point, we know that Paul's off the hook as far as his criminal charges are concerned. And he focuses his attention on the showing how his message just reinforces the Old Testament narrative of a coming Messiah. And this is the linchpin question. The linchpin question in all of what's happening, all the tension that's happening in the religious world, then and dare I say now, is this. Is Jesus the Messiah? And this is where we see Paul use his transformation story. Look at chapter 26. We're going to jump around here a little bit. But Paul starts uh, by saying some things here in verse 2 of chapter 26 of Acts. Listen to this. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, one thing we do know about King Agrippa is he's a Jewish historian, and so he understands this culture. He understands the tension here. The tension that Paul was raised in the Jewish elite community to be raised to lead people in that tradition and understanding of the law. And at one point in his life, he meets this person, Jesus, and it drastically changes the message in their opinion. What Paul's saying is, it didn't change the message at all. I just saw the message for clear, clearly for what it always was. We can both agree, Paul's going to say this later, we can both agree that the Old Testament points to a Messiah. Where we disagree is I say that the Messiah is Jesus and all the prophecy fulfills that. That's the linchpin of this. So when he stands before King Agrippa, he's talking to a Jewish historian that would have understood all the dynamics that go into this moment. 
This is not a typical defense. Paul's saying this is a good thing. This is a good thing because this is going to provide some clarity here. So please be patient as I explain myself, Paul says. You understand the tradition. You understand the law. So please be patient and let me explain myself. Isn't that something lacking in our culture too? Can you please just be patient while I explain why I believe Jesus is the Messiah? Instead of, no, absolutely not. That's not what I believe. Stop ramming your religion down my throat, those kinds of things. And so what Paul's up against is a similar culture to what we're up against. And he's saying just, you understand all the dynamics, historically and religiously speaking here, King Agrippa, and I find it to be a good thing that you're the one hearing my case. But I ask King Agrippa to please be patient while I explain my story. Because the question's coming to Paul, you're not the same guy you used to be. What changed? Because it's making everybody mad. And so verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused of Jews, O King, why is this thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I, per I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now listen, this is what Paul, we've seen Paul do this before. Paul is a master at telling a story. He's a master at connecting with his audience. And what Paul's doing here is he's saying, the same zeal that is coming after me and attacking me in this is the same zeal that drove me to live every minute of my life till the day I met Jesus. So this is not unfamiliar to me. I can appreciate their zeal. I can appreciate their passion because that was me. What Paul's saying without saying is, I dare you to find someone who is more passionate about squashing this message of Jesus than I was. All the pieces of the puzzle were there. He understood it. And the linchpin to his story is about to happen. Look at how he describes in more detail than we have heard the moment that he meets Jesus. Look at this, starting at verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? 
Capital L, Lord, by the way. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And before we get any further... This is the first time that we've seen Paul retell in explicit detail what Jesus actually said to him. Up to this point, if you go back to his conversion in the early part of the book of Acts, you'll see some red letters in there that talk, you know, you'll hear Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you'll see the red letters that say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You see that there are red letters that tell him that he needs to go into the town of Damascus and wait for Ananias to come. Notice that he doesn't mention any of that in this fifth defense. In this, in this fifth time that he shares his testimony and shares his story of transformation, notice that he doesn't mention that part. He goes into explicit detail about what Jesus commanded of him. That's important. Because what's the charge against him? The charge against him is that he is defying the religious order of the day. And he's giving a reason as to why he did that. He's saying that Jesus of Nazareth was the reason I was going to Damascus. By the way, side note, anytime I see the word journey in the Bible, it makes me happy. Because it falls so in line with the context of why we call ourselves Journey Church. Because Paul was on his way to Damascus, and it says that the men who journeyed with me, he was on this journey on the way to Damascus to do something. He thought that's what he was supposed to do. And then all of a sudden, he meets a very real Jesus, and it changed everything. And that's how Jesus meets us on our journey, on our way to where we're going. Jesus meets us there. And the only thing that's going to drastically change or transform our story is a very real, living, and active Jesus and an encounter with Him. So what drove Paul was deep sense of calling. Jesus Himself met Him. Paul has to reconcile in the moment of the bright lights, he has to reconcile a whole lifetime of education and history. He has to reconcile the fact that he's on his way to Damascus to imprison, to beat, and to kill followers of Jesus, to squash the rebellion. And in the moment of the bright lights and the blinding lights and the voice and the person of Jesus standing in front of him, he's reconciling a whole lifetime. When I said earlier, all the pieces of the puzzle were there, it's like Paul staring in the eyes of Jesus and all the pieces of the puzzle start to fall into place. And he's starting to see all the connections of prophecy and things that he's hung his hat on saying, this is the prophecy, this is the Messiah, this is what to look for, this is what you'll see. And all of a sudden he's seeing all those things in Jesus. Verse 19. 
This is Paul's defense. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but first declared to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now, I'm going to stop there because I want you to see the sequence that he's, that he's telling his obedience. He's saying that right now I'm being accused of being disobedient to a religious order that sent me, and I should say, shouldn't say sent, who gave me permission to go to Damascus and persecute the church. And on my way there, I met a very real Jesus, and it changed my life. And it gave me a message, a message not of condemnation, not of one of legalism, not one that said, I'm right and you're wrong, and once you do things like me, you'll be better. Now, it was a message of hope and a message of grace and a message of joy, and it was one that Paul hadn't had the opportunity to live in his whole life. And so his major defense comes down to verse 19 when he says, Therefore, based on everything I've said before, remember, if you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask yourself, what's it? There you go. So verse 19, Therefore, based on everything I've said before, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What he's saying is, I obeyed the right voice. I was obedient to the correct voice. And that's why people are upset with me. And then what did I do? He declared, verse 20, first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, then Judea, then to the Gentiles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. You realize that whenever Jesus gave the command to go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, and lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. These are things Jesus said before He ascends back into heaven to start building a heavenly place for us to dwell with Him for eternity. You realize when He said that, who wasn't there. Paul wasn't there. And yet, when it was time for him to actually send out the message and be the hope, be the hands and feet of Jesus, what did he do? He followed the exact same sequence that Jesus gave a command to live out of. I lived out Jesus where I was right then and there in Damascus, and then I left Damascus and went to Jerusalem and all over the region of Judea. And then I went to the Gentiles. Basically, he's saying that I did exactly as Jesus commanded us all to do. See, he had this deep sense of calling, a very real moment with Jesus, and it, it led to a deep sense of calling. His, his life had been transformed by a very real Jesus, by a very real Messiah. And the dots all connected, that all of this Old Testament prophecy all pointed to Jesus, that He was and is the Messiah. 
You see, Paul had this radically different life from the time he met Jesus on the road to Damascus on. So the question that begs to be asked is, what about you? Have you met a very real Jesus? Have the dots connected for you? See, most people believe in a Messiah. Most people believe in a rescuer. Most people believe in a Savior. But if it's not Jesus, you're just left with questions that don't have answers. So I think today's passages remind us of a few crucial things as it pertains to our relationship with Jesus. So we're reminded of of God's side of the equation when it comes to our salvation and that that He acted first. That He, he He proved His love for us by sending His Son to die on the cross for us. But we also see the importance of the other side of the equation. The other side of the equation is human response. If you read through the end of this, you see King Agrippa, uh, he just doesn't have any time for this. He has the opportunity. He's been presented with the good news of Jesus. And he failed to respond by accepting Jesus as his Savior and Lord. It's not enough to be told how to meet Jesus. We need to accept that gift for ourselves. See, I think a lot of us circle around Jesus' conversations enough to make us feel good about our belief system in Jesus. That that, that if if I know enough about this concept, then I'm good. But we end up like King Agrippa. What happens here in verse 24 of chapter 26, if you flip forward, Festus says in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, Festus, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So they have his charges. But the response is, you think in one short conversation, you're you're going to be able to convert me to your way of thinking. You realize I'm a king who's well-educated? And you think you're going to turn me in that one quick conversation? Paul asks the hard question in verse 27. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. I know you have all the information you need to understand that Jesus came for you. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul's response, whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. If it's, if it's you, it's not just you, it's everyone within earshot of the message of hope that comes from the person of Jesus. I want everyone to have what I have except for these chains. That would be nice for them. I want everyone, including you, King Agrippa, including your sister Bernice, including this whole room full of military pomp and circumstance that you brought in here. I want everyone to understand the hope of Jesus. I want everyone to have this amazing gift and treasure that I live in. Minus the chains. I'd be okay if I had the chains and they didn't. So we're reminded of God's side of the equation. You realize God did that. God stepped in to our mess. He moved first. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He didn't wait for us to do the right things. He didn't wait for us to have enough understanding, enough education, or enough circling around what's out there to taste and see until we figure out Jesus. He didn't do that. He stepped into our mess and He fixed it. He did that. Because we couldn't. And now the human response is what we're up against. The message of hope that Paul lives, not just speaks, but lives and speaks, is given to King Agrippa. And it's not enough to be told how to meet Jesus. It's not enough just to be told how to be saved. It's not enough to be told how to give your life to the person of Jesus. You must receive it. The second thing I think we pick up here is we see a really perfect example, once again, of the type of excitement we should have when it comes to sharing the story of Jesus. You see, Paul has a heart of love for those who don't know Jesus. His, his kindness towards King Agrippa is driven by something he did not have before he met Jesus. All he had before he met Jesus was education. All he had was tradition. All he had was legalism, pride, vengeance. And now he has love for these people. Paul was overwhelmed by what God had done for him. And he didn't care if he had to lose his life doing it. He was going to tell anyone and everyone about Jesus. And that's our calling as followers of Jesus, by the way. And the third, and possibly the most important thing today, I hope you can see the power of a transformed life. Paul was a really eloquent speaker. He was really good at arguing a case before a crowd. He was not intimidated by that. But the power behind every word that he spoke, every word that he preached, the power behind all that was his life. He was a changed man, and everyone could see it plain as day. It's what got him in all of his trouble, that it wasn't just words. It was his whole life. You realize that if Paul would have just gone with the flow and just lived out Jesus in his private little space, he would have been just fine. 
The reason that Paul kept getting arrested, kept getting threatened, kept getting beaten up, kept getting stoned, kept getting put in prison is because it wasn't just words for him. It wasn't a tiny commitment. It was Jesus had wrecked his whole life and then rebuilt it better than he ever could have imagined. And it got people's attention. People took notice. That led me to ask this question. What about me? Does my life make a compelling case for the gospel? Does my life make a compelling case for the gospel? When Paul eventually gets to Rome, which we're going to look at next week, he's in prison and he writes a letter to the church in Rome. It's one of his most full and complete letters that he writes. And in chapter 12, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, don't look more like the world once you have Jesus. That's incongruent. Not just your words, but your life should make a compelling case for the gospel. 1 Peter 2, 11, and 12. It says, Dear friends, Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Aliens and strangers, you're not supposed to fit in. Let that sink in, because that's what the gospel should do. The gospel should produce such joy and such grace and such love and such mercy in us that it makes deep impacts where we live and where we work and how we do our business. Every aspect of our lives should be infiltrated by this grace and so overwhelmed by it that we pour it out to the community that we live in. That's what drives this church, just so you know. We have to live differently than the world. If your life doesn't look very different than those around you, something is wrong. We're called to be salt and light in a world of death and darkness. And Jesus said, if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? If you have salt and it doesn't taste like salt anymore, do you want to keep it around? Does it have a purpose? We are to bring that to the world that we live in. Don't waste your life trying to fit in. Don't waste your influence. Do you realize you have influence I could never have? With your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. And I have influence that some of you will never have with my neighbors and my friends and my family and my coworkers, which coworkers is basically just me and Dusty, but still. 
And see, we need to live a life that's transformed, radically transformed by a Savior who deeply loves us. This isn't something that's just something we check off of a box. Church isn't, it shouldn't be something that we do. Somewhere along the line, we believe the lie that church is somewhere that you go and you do certain things while you're in this building called a church and then that's it. And Satan has done a masterstroke of convincing us that's what life as a follower of God looks like. You clean yourself up once a week, you show up, you sing some songs, and then you, you, you check some things off your box of religious activity, and then life is life the rest of the week. But that's not what we see anywhere in Scripture as what a life transformed by grace looks like. See, I think too many times I can even come across, like, get yourself in gear, right? You can, I, I can come across like that, like, what's the matter with you? You know the right answers, now do it. I'm not necessarily apologizing for that, but I think what drove Paul, I know what drove Paul, wasn't this compulsion to just check things off a box or say, I know better, so I'm going to live better. It was that he had, he had tasted and seen and experienced the grace and mercy and love of a very real Jesus. And it made all the dots connect of his whole education, of his whole upbringing, his whole life. And he spent the rest of his life making sure that people knew that Jesus. It didn't matter what it cost him. Because he had been transformed by the grace of Jesus. Our time is short you need to make it count. Is your life making a compelling case for the gospel? Because Paul's did. I'll end with what Peter says in verse 12, chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live a life so transformed by the grace of God, so full of of the attributes of God, that what you know Jesus poured into you, you're willing to do whatever you can to pour it out to those you come in contact with. I don't know where you're at today, but I'm guessing that you have a Messiah. Do you believe that one's out there? I just know that if that Messiah is not Jesus, you'll be left with more questions than answers. God, may we find all our answers in you. May we find all our hope in you. It's the only place where it can truly and consistently and profoundly be found. All the answers that we need are found in Jesus. May we be the church. May we be a place where sin is defeated through the power of the cross and that we can gather around one another and walk through this with one another. True journey of life. I don't know where we're all headed today. We each have individual things going on in our lives, Lord. We're all journeying somewhere, but you long to meet us somewhere on that path. And when you meet us on our journey, our desired destination changes. And I pray that that's what happens in this place today. Renew it in us if it needs renewed. 
and bring it to us afresh for those who maybe haven't experienced your grace completely. Lord, you stepped in. You brought grace to us. We couldn't do anything to get it ourselves. You took the punishment of sin. You are our rescuer. You are the Messiah.